I'm really excited to be here. Wilson and I have been friends for a couple of years, and so I hear a lot about what's going on in your community, but I have not had the opportunity to actually be here on a Sunday because as a pastor, I have responsibilities on Sundays normally. So uh, this Sunday, we've got a missionary speaking at our church, and so it was nice to be able to get away and, and be here with you. Now, we're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there, or if you have your phone or iPad or whatever, you can, uh, you can find John chapter 20. I know that you're in the midst of a series about spiritual habits, talking about spiritual disciplines, and there's a couple things you've gone through. We're going to continue that series by looking at this text in John 20 and talking specifically about service this morning, about what it means to be a servant, what it means to, to serve other people. I love this text. In, uh, in John chapter 20, there's just this great passage that this takes place on the night of Easter. So basically, we know Easter took place, you know, the resurrection of Jesus. His friends go to the tomb early in the morning. Uh, they find that Jesus is no longer dead, but that he's alive. Some of them have seen Jesus, in fact. Um, and then on that evening, the evening of that first Easter, Jesus comes and he meets with the disciples in this room. And it's, it's actually a really beautiful interaction. I want us to look at it this morning in the time that we have. So we're going to start in John chapter 20. And uh, we'll begin in verse 19. It says this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Will you pray with me this morning before we begin? God, we thank you for your word. The fact that in your foresight and in your love, you left us this written word that reveals to us truths about who you are that reveals to us not only truths about who you are, but in light of who you are, then reveals truths about who you've created us to be, what all this means, why we're here, why you've rescued us from sin and death, and what you've called us to. This morning, as we open your word, we do so to continue our worship of you. We've worshiped you through the singing of our, our songs of praise. We worship you through gathering together as a body, and we worship you as we listen to your voice your spirit speaks through your word, and we pray that you would speak to us and that you would be glorified in this place. Move in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So they're in this upper room, these disciples. It says that Jesus comes to them in this place the, the evening of Easter. And you might imagine, it's kind of a, an interesting picture because it tells us the disciples are gathered in a, in a locked room. They've gathered in a room, they've locked the door because they're afraid. I don't know what you assume the response would be from the disciples to the resurrection of Christ, but I, I actually wasn't assuming that fear would be one of their responses, right? You would think in light of the fact that Jesus had very clearly said to the disciples before this, hey, we're going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, they're going to kill me, but I'm going to rise from the dead. Like in no uncertain terms, Jesus had articulated to them that he was going to be crucified, that he would die, but that he would rise again. You would think that now as the reports are coming in, right, people are hearing Mary had gone to the tomb and Jesus wasn't there. There are two men walking on the road and Jesus appears to them. You would think that as these reports are coming in, the disciples would be having a party. That the proof of everything they'd been pursuing and everything that Jesus had said had just been sort of ratified. You'd think they'd be celebrating. The, the power of God, there'd be no more room for fear, right? 
that in light of the empty tomb, these disciples would absolutely be overjoyed. And yet we find them on Easter Sunday night behind a locked door for fear. The Lord is risen, and here are the disciples. Now, no, it's not 12 disciples at this point. We're talking about 10, right? Because the text will tell us, if we, if we read further, if you look at verse 24, it says, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. He'll appear to Thomas later. So Thomas isn't there. We know Judas isn't there. So we're talking about 10 disciples, 10 core disciples, and then other followers of Jesus. And some theologians suggest that this room they're gathered in is the very same one where they took the Last Supper, uh, a place that they'd already acquired as a, as a gathering space for them. But we see these, these followers of Jesus who know about the resurrected Christ behind a locked door, sort of huddled together because they're afraid. And the, the fear is understandable, right? It's the same fear of the Jews that Peter had that caused him to deny Christ, right? When they look at Peter and they say, weren't you one of the guys that followed Jesus? Weren't you one of the ones that was his disciple? Remember, Peter famously denies that he even knew Jesus. Why? Because he's afraid. The Jewish people had effectively had Jesus arrested and had him crucified, and the disciples were afraid for their own lives. They were afraid for their safety. They were afraid for the consequences upon them. And Jesus knew that would happen. Jesus had said to them earlier, he said, they're going to strike the shepherd, remember? He says, they're going to strike the shepherd, and you guys are going to scatter. It's like, things are going to get tough for you. He knew they would be afraid. We understand why they're afraid. It says they're locked in this room because of their fear of the Jews. It's kind of interesting the places where fear pop up in the pursuit of following Christ, isn't it? It's kind of crazy the things that sort of freak us out and then get us afraid. I, I, um, before I worked in Long Beach and before, before that I worked at Hume Lake and then before I worked at Hume Lake, I was actually in a band for a little while, a Christian band. And we had the opportunity to travel around the country and we did some touring and whatever and we, we were doing a show one time in Utah on the, uh, on the Indian reservation. So they had a decent Christian radio station there. They'd invited our band to come and do this concert. But there's not a lot of bands that go out to the, to the Indian reservation. And so we, they had us at the local high school, out on the football field. They put up this big stage, all the lights. And there was like a huge crowd. It was, like, it was actually one of the biggest crowds we had played for um, in that particular tour. Because most of the time we were playing to smaller crowds. This is like a big deal on the reservation. About five minutes before we're about to go on stage, uh, the local tribal police, they come to us and, and they're like, we need to talk to the band that's going to perform. And they pull us aside and they go, hey, we just need to let you know that we've received reports that there's a gentleman who is inebriated. He left his house with a gun and he told his wife before he left that he was going to come to this event, this concert, and he was going to try and shoot somebody on stage. And I'm like, What? And he goes, yeah, we just kind of wanted to make you aware, you know, that this could. And so the, the, the police officer, he goes, so we have a couple of options. And I was like, no, I don't think we do. I don't think we do have a couple of options. I think the concert is canceled, right? That's not, we're not I'm not going to get up on stage and like, I don't really care that much about Utah, to be honest with you. And uh, I'm not sure we've ever sold any records here. And I'm, I'm not really concerned that we ever sell records here. I'm, I'm ready to go, right? How far is it to Nevada or whatever, right? And just like this, because, you know, you understand, I'm thinking, like, it's not worth it to me. Like, I, I want to do this music ministry, and I want to share the gospel, but I don't want to get hit with a bullet, right? So the one has kind of trumped the other. Just like this, my guitar player, he goes, wouldn't it be amazing, though, if one of us got killed while we were sharing the gospel with people in Utah? That would be incredible. And I was like, yeah, it would be really incredible if you got killed while we were... <laughs> While we were sharing the gospel, that would be great for our record sales, you know, like nothing puts record sales through the roof like a martyr in the band, like that would be awesome, but I don't want to be the dude that makes the sacrifice 
And so, is, you know, I, my own safety, my own fear, my own doubt is causing me to want to cancel this ministry opportunity because I'm afraid. Now, we ended up doing the concert. He kind of guilted me into it. The guitar player made me feel, I felt like a bad Christian. So we got up and did the concert. I didn't get shot, although this officer, he comes back, heard like a loud noise. I assumed I was getting shot. Um, when we get all done, the police officer, he comes back to us and he goes, hey, it turns out, no big deal. The, uh, the guy passed out in his truck before he even left his driveway. We just didn't know that. You know, I'm like, oh, that would have been nice to know two hours ago, you know. But it turned out to be nothing, but I was afraid. There are times in our lives we're following the Lord Jesus and fear paralyzes us. Fear neutralizes us. We get afraid. What we want to do is find ourselves a room where we can lock and bar the door, where we can get in there with other people who think the same thing as us and believe the same thing as us and have the same experiences we have, who look like us and feel like us and see the world the way we do. We want to lock and bar the doors and just kind of stay in this safe place where nobody can cause us any harm. And there is no pain and there is no suffering and there is no fear. This is what the disciples have done on Easter Sunday. They've hunkered down together. They've huddled together with a group of similar people who look and think and feel and have experienced the same things, and they're afraid. I don't know you this morning, but I would guess there may be some of you who are living in some fear, who are feeling afraid about things that are happening in your personal life. You may be feeling afraid about things that are happening with your finances or things that are happening with your education or things that are happening in your relationships. You may be living in fear about things that are happening in our country. You may be living in fear about things that are happening in your city. And if you're feeling that fear, I have great news for you because what we see in this text right out of the gate is that here are these disciples who've done whatever they can. They've locked and barred the door. They've hunkered down. And what does Jesus do? He stands in their midst. He comes to them in their fear. He joins them in that place where they're afraid. Now, it doesn't say that he unlocks the door and walks in. It tells us something about the nature of his resurrected body that it says he comes and stands. He just appears in this room. He's standing with them, right? The reality is that each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus can take hope from the fact that Jesus stands beside you when you're afraid, that he comes to you and stands in your midst when you're terrified, when you're tempted to lock and bar the door. He is there with you. I love the verses in Scripture that tell us about our God. Psalms 145, 14 says, The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who were bowed down. I love what it says in Deuteronomy 4, 7. It says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? What other nation has a God like this? What other people has a God like this that is so near to us when we call on Him? It doesn't matter how afraid you are. It doesn't matter what kind of barricades you've put up. The truth of the matter is that Jesus can join you there that he can meet you in whatever it is you're afraid of. He stands in their midst, right? And he not only stands in their midst, back to John chapter 20, look at what happens here. It says, on the evening of that day, verse 19, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. He comes into their midst and he speaks shalom over them. Shalom, the word peace. Very common Hebrew greeting, by the way. This is a very common way both to say hello and a way to say goodbye. But the sense of peace here is not the sense that we think about peace as Americans. A lot of times when we think about peace, we're thinking about like no fighting or, you know, just like 
peace, like let's all get along and can we not fight or whatever. That's not what shalom meant. Shalom, shalom was much deeper. It was, more, it was more broad than that. The idea of shalom in the Hebrew sense was an idea of, of complete and total well-being in its fullest sense, okay? Complete and total well-being in its fullest sense. That's what they mean when they say shalom. He comes to them and he says peace to them, total well-being in its fullest sense to you. And here's what's beautiful about that. Yes, it's a common greeting, but look at what this means. When the resurrected Jesus comes into the midst of their fear and he speaks shalom to them, it is the first time in human history where someone has said shalom not just as a hope, not just as a wish, but it's the first time in human history when someone has actually been able to extend shalom to other people. Think about that for a second. Every time prior to this, that the Hebrew people or, 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 or any human being looked at another human being and said, shalom unto you, peace be with you, shalom unto you. It was always a hope. It was always kind of a dream. It's kind of like when we look at our children and we say, sweet dreams, right? We hope our kids have good dreams. We hope they don't have nightmares. But when we say sweet dreams, none of us actually have the power to control or to affect or to give our children a peaceful night. We say it in hope that it will occur. Every time any human being had ever looked at another human being prior to this point and said, shalom unto you, peace be unto you, it was always, I hope you find well-being in its truest and fullest sense. But the resurrected Jesus, who took the sins of the world upon himself, who shed his blood on our behalf, who rose again, not only having paid the penalty for sin, but having extended to us by his grace resurrection life, who's made peace, shalom, between God and man, he steps into this room with the locked and the barred door where everybody's hunkered down for fear. And he doesn't just say, I hope you find peace. He can actually extend shalom to them by the power of his resurrection. And it's the first time that's ever happened. It's the first time shalom has actually been possible for human beings. It's never been possible to have complete and total well-being in the fullest sense for a human being except by the power of the resurrected Jesus. He extends something that's never been available before. He looks at them and says, peace be unto you, in the midst of their fear. And then it says he shows them his scars. That also tells us something interesting about the nature of the resurrected body of Jesus, that he still has scars. You would think in a resurrected body, those scars would go away. But he's kept those. He's kept the scars in his hand, the scar on his side. Why? Because those scars are the way in which he is identified. You see, this Jesus isn't just a great teacher. He's not just a loving rabbi. He's not just a peaceful man. He is the one who was nailed to the cross for the sins of the world, who was put into the tomb dead, not asleep, not in a coma, not knocked out for a little while, but dead. And when he stands before them and he shows them his scars, it's the proof of who he is. It's his ID. And it says what? Their sorrow turns to joy. It says, verse 20, when he had said this, when he'd said, peace be unto you, When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So what's happened? Their fear has turned to joy. Their fear has turned to gladness, which, not coincidentally, is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Jesus says earlier in uh, in John chapter 16, verse 20, Jesus had said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. What's he talking about? He's saying there's a time coming when the world will rejoice because I will be dead and out of the way and you will be sorrowful. You will be full of grief. You will be sad. But he says in 1620, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When Jesus shows them the wounds in his hand and in his side, when they see that it truly is the resurrected Jesus, what Jesus had prophesied comes true. It is fulfilled in that room. Their sorrow turns to joy. Their fear turns to gladness when they see the resurrected Jesus. It is no coincidence that Jesus said that shalom was something he came to bring. That this peace was something he said would be ours. He says in John 14. In John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 16, 33, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This shalom that he extends to them is not something they buy. It's not something they earn. It's not something they have to pay for. He doesn't trade them something for it. He gives them his peace. He shows them his wounds. And he says again a second time, peace be unto you. Now I want you to think about this situation. Because for many people, this is the perfect place. For many of us, we would look at the scenario these people now find themselves in, these disciples, and we would go, why would you ever want to leave that room, right? Because think about it. They're in a locked and barred room. They're, they're safe with each other. They've, they're surrounded by other people who think the same way they do and look the same way they do, who've experienced the same things, who believe the same things, who want the same things. They're in this little room where everybody is the same. And the only thing that's a problem is that they're afraid. Then Jesus comes into that place where everybody looks and thinks and feels the same, he comes into that place and by his supernatural power, he brings them shalom. Total and complete well-being in its fullest sense. He extends that to them. Now, this is the best possible place. Why would you ever want to leave? Here we are all together. We look and think and feel the same. Nobody can get in to hurt us. The door is locked. And now Jesus is here and he's brought us peace. He's brought us joy where we only had sorrow before. Like this is everything we ever wanted, right? And then Jesus has to go and screw it up, right? Because he effectively looks at them and says, we can't stay like this. He says, peace be unto you. And then look at what he says. John chapter 20. Jesus said to them again in verse 21, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He comes into their holy huddle, into their safe little place that they've made for themselves, where they have each other and they have Jesus and his peace, where their sorrows turn to joy, and he goes, somebody needs to unlock that door because we can't stay here. This is important and significant because there is a large portion of Christendom, of Christians today, who are working to get this. A bunch of us in a little room who all think the same thing and feel the same way and look the same and Jesus is here and he makes us happy and what else could we ever want? Let's lock the door and never leave. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. He says, I'm sending you like I was sent. I'm sending you like I was sent. I give you my peace. I give you this sense of fulfillment in its fullest sense by my death and resurrection. And now it's not meant to be yours just to huddle together, but it's meant to be yours to go out of here. I'm sending you like I was sent. Well, how was Jesus sent? Jesus was sent in the incarnation, right? He was sent by the Father. In fact, he referred to himself frequently as the sent one. 
In John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer, he says, now, my Father, I'm sending them as you have sent me. Jesus was sent to earth in the incarnation. Philippians 2 says that though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be clung to, but instead he emptied himself of all that. He became nothing. He humbled himself and became a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was himself sent And the verb tenses here are important. He's looking at them and saying, we can't stay here. We can't stay in this safe little room. I didn't come so that you could live a safe life. I came so that you could live a sent life. Because I live a sent life, he says. The verb tenses are important. The the first verb tense, when he says, as the Father has sent me, that's a perfect present verb, which is technical, but basically it means something that started in the past and continues on into the future. That sending of Jesus is not something that was like a one-time deal, and now he's sending us as a one-time deal. The the second verb, the second sent there is a perfect verb, which basically just means that it is in the current terms, right? Right then. But what he's saying is we're not talking about two different missions. It's not that Jesus had a mission, and now he's giving us a mission, that Jesus was sent, and now he's sending us. It's that our being sent is a part of the sending of the Son. Does that make sense? It's all one mission. Jesus is the one who accomplished shalom through his death and resurrection, and we are the ones who distributed it as ambassadors. That we get to carry the message of reconciliation to the world, that God is not holding men's sins against them, but he's drawing them to himself. Jesus says we're all part of one continuing mission, the sending of the Father. As I've been sent, you were sent. We can't stay in this room. We gotta take the lock off the door. We gotta get out of here. Jesus came to serve, and so we are called to serve. It's as important for us as it was for Jesus because he makes it so. He's under the authority of God and he's obedient to God. He brings life to others to the degree in which he gave up his own. Think about that again. He brings life to others to the degree in which he gave up his own. That's why we'll see in in the New Testament in several places, Jesus will say, like in Matthew 20, in Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, I didn't come here to be served. I didn't come to be a king on a throne and people would bring all their stuff and offer it to me. I came here to serve. It's why he washes the feet of the disciples, right? Also famously in John chapter 13, he he takes off his robe, he puts on the towel, he fills the basin with water, and he washes the feet of the disciples, In John 13, verse uh, 13, it says, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Jesus was sent to serve. He serves through his death and resurrection, but in a more temporal sense, he serves simply by looking and seeing the needs and caring for people along the way. He steps out of a boat and he meets a demon-possessed man and he heals him. He's walking along the path and the crowd is pressed in so much that people are jostled everywhere and he feels power go out from him as a woman reaches out and touches the hem of his garment and he doesn't just keep going, he stops and he turns back to her because he cares about her. Jesus was sent to serve and now he comes into this holy huddle of disciples who look and think and feel the same, and he says, we can't 
hunkered down behind our walls. We can't hide here in a locked room because we have a mission. And our mission is an ongoing one and it cannot be accomplished in this room. It's worth noting that Jesus didn't get his scars in a locked room. He didn't get his scars in a safe place. Jesus wasn't living safe. He was living sent. And when we adopt and when we recognize the reality of our sentness, sent to be servants as well, you know what? We'll pick up similar scars. One of the reasons why we like to lock the door and we like to hunker down is we don't want the scars. We don't want the pain. We don't want the difficulty. We just want sunshine and rainbows. We want to go to heaven when we die. We want Jesus to answer our prayers when we tell him to, right? But Jesus says in Matthew 10, it will be hard. He says, all men will hate you because of me. They'll take you in front of their magistrates and they'll beat you and kids are going to try and kill parents and, and parents are going to try and kill kids and they're going to call you the devil. And they're, you know, he goes on and on. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. We will gather similar scars if we're on a similar mission. And yet sometimes I think we feel this sense of trying to protect ourselves, our time, our health, our life, our goals, our plans, our ambitions. We want to lock those things behind a wall. And Jesus comes into the middle of that fear and he goes, no, 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 we got to take this out of here. He says to them in John 20, as the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. Says when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. I don't know, that's kind of weird. Like, I don't know exactly what that looks like. If he goes, Hey, come a little closer. <sighs> I don't know. Maybe that's weird. I'd like to see a videotape of this. Maybe he goes, <sighs> you know, I have no idea what, what that physically looked like, but it's important. The reason he breathes on them in conjunction with this call to receive the Holy Spirit is that throughout Scripture, in fact, as early as the creation, God breathes into people. He breathes life into people through their nostrils. God's breath. And the word for breath is the same as the word for spirit and wind, right? He breathes on them and says, receive the spirit. And you might be confused at that point because we go, well, doesn't, don't they receive the spirit at Pentecost in Acts, right? Seems like that doesn't happen here. Are they, are they getting a, like a little appetizer of the spirit and then they get the main course of the spirit later? How's this go down? I actually believe that what's happening here is Jesus is preparing their hearts to receive the Spirit. He recognizes that this sent mission that, he, that he's calling them to is one in which they will only be able to do what God's calling them to do by the power of the Spirit. It is the, the, the Spirit of God is the, is the energy source through which we serve. So he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. But it's not that they're being indwelt with the Holy Spirit here. They'll be indwelt with the Spirit at Pentecost. He's telling them to anticipate that in the same way he does in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, uh, right before the, the ascension, right? Right before the ascension in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he'd said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. They don't receive, they're not indwelt with the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.8. They're not indwelt with the Holy Spirit for another 40 days. There's a gap between the ascension of Christ and, and Pentecost. But what Jesus is saying is, this mission I'm sending you on, this living a life of sentness and service is only possible through the power of the Spirit. You need to receive the Spirit of God. Don't go out there and just try and do it by your own strength, right? Which is a, a pretty common sort of American flaw 
that we have sort of been told again and again that if we dream it, we can do it, right? That we're all the little engine that can. And if you just think you can, 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 you can make anything happen, right? Because our, our parents have told us that and our, our culture tells us that. The Bible actually tells us the exact opposite. If we look at the Bible closely, the Bible says that human beings are actually the little engine that can't. That might make you feel frustrated, but we can't save ourselves. We in and of ourselves can't be holy. We can't be righteous. That's why Jesus came, to die and to serve. And we can't live lives of service apart from the power of the Spirit of God. So he breathes on them, whatever that looks like, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says what is probably the most controversial thing in the, in the whole thing we read today. Look at what it says in 23. In 22, he breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then in 23, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That feel a little weird? almost feels like a superpower, right? It almost feels like, whoa, it sounds like Jesus is saying we have the ability to be like, forgiven, 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 you took my parking space, not forgiven, sorry, you know, forgiven, forgiven, you cut in line in front of me at Vaughn's, not forgiven, spending eternity separated from God, so sorry, right? Like, somehow I have the ability to decide who receives resurrection life and who does not receive resurrection life, and listen, before you let your mind go too far down that road, that is not what Jesus is saying, because that would contradict that would contradict the rest of the whole of Scripture, which is very clear about the fact that man cannot forgive sins. The Pharisees even knew that. Famously in Mark, right, when Jesus heals the man, or actually he says to the man first, your sins are forgiven you, and the Pharisees are like, what? They're pulling their hair. You can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus goes, yeah, that's me, right? I'm him, I'm God, right? And just so you know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, Take up your mat and walk, and the man who'd never walked gets up and does, right? Jesus is illustrating his godness there. Mankind doesn't have the power to forgive or to withhold forgiveness, so what's Jesus saying? Jesus is articulating something about the importance of service, about the importance of sentness, because what he's saying is this shalom, this complete and total wellness, fulfillment in its fullest sense, that is available to you by my death and resurrection is only available to mankind through me. And if we stay locked in this room behind our barred doors with everybody who thinks and feels and looks and talks the same as us, then there are gonna be a whole host of people who will die and be separated from God forever. But if we take the bar off the door, if we go out into the highways and the byways, if we go to Jerusalem and Judea and the uttermost parts of the earth and we say unto them, the peace of God can be yours. What was accomplished by Christ is available to you. Then every person on earth has the opportunity to be forgiven. But if we lock, lock in, if we hunker down, then we are in essence withholding forgiveness from those. I think sometimes we think about evangelism, we think about service, mission, we think of it in terms of like being able to extend to people the option, right? Well, do you want to be separated from God or do you want to spend eternity with God? Do you want to go to heaven or hell? Do you, do you want to be forgiven for your sin or do you want to be guilty of your sin and, and still set to pay that penalty yourself? We feel sometimes like our mission is to go out and give people two choices, but that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't say that men have the option to choose between one or the other. The Bible says in John 3 that if they don't believe... They are condemned already. The people who don't hear the message of the shalom of Christ, the gospel of Christ, are separated from him already. So when we decide to hunker down, 
when we decide to be safe, to live safe lives, what we in essence do effectively is withhold the message of forgiveness. Because God could choose to get that message out any way He wants, right? He could take over cloud formations. He could have all the animals on the earth stand up and start barking out the gospel. He could take over the jumbotron in New York City. But He's chosen one delivery method for the gospel, and it's us. Ambassadorship is His method. It's His delivery method. It's His only delivery method. People will see the reality of God, it says in Romans 1. They'll see the reality of who God is by what He has created, but they cannot be redeemed through that general revelation. So Jesus looks at them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, and those to whom you share the message of forgiveness, to those with whom you, to whom you extend forgiveness will be forgiven, and to those from whom you withhold it, it will be withheld. Jesus says, we can't stay in this place, we gotta go. But for us, a lot of times, the, the, the key comes down to figuring out what's in it for us, right? And the reality is that it's, it's very difficult to be motivated to serve other people when, when you're motivated by what you get out of things, right? If, if a lot of times we're worried about protecting our own lives, like I was in Utah, right? Protecting my own skin, protecting my ability to drive to another state and do another concert and sell another record. When I'm worried about protecting myself, if I look at serving others, it doesn't make sense because there's not much in it for me. There's more in it for me if I hunker down and live safe. And the reality is that living on mission, living sent lives, serving other people the way Jesus served other people, the, pay, the payoff of that kind of life is not for you. The payoff of that kind of life is for God. He's the one that's glorified in it, right? God gets glory when we live as servants. The payoff is not for us. There are some sort of peripheral residuals to living a serving life, but ultimately the one who receives the payoff for our life of service is Jesus. So why do it? Why don't we just lock the doors and hang out in here? Because this is a good group, right? We could effectively learn everybody's name, and it would just be so great to just be us, just doing our thing talking our talk and taking care of each other and just hunkering down. We lock the doors. Jesus comes. He brings his peace, and that's it. What is the motivation to go out and do what Jesus is calling us to do? There is one motivator that will move us to sacrifice, that will move us to serve when there is no payoff. One motivator, and I'll illustrate it this way, and then I'll be done. When my son Hank was, uh, <clears throat> when he was two and a half, he was being potty trained, and uh, we were in the Fresno airport. We were getting ready to fly to Nevada to visit grandparents. And uh, we're in the Fresno airport, and my son Hank looks at me, and he goes, Dad, I need to go to the bathroom. By the way, he's 14 now. He hates when I tell this story. But he goes, uh, Dad, I need to go to the bathroom. Now, at two years old, when he was being potty trained, when Hank said, I need to go to the bathroom, he didn't mean like, in the next half hour, it would be great to find a restroom. It was like a 30-second timer. You know what I'm saying? It was like, he said, I need to go to the bathroom. And it was like a ticking time bomb, right? So... Uh, I drop whatever I'm doing, I scoop up my son Hank, and I'm running through the Fresno airport with my son held out in front of me, right? People are looking at us a little bit weird, you know, the cops are unsnapping their guns, and to be honest, he is a chemical weapon. I'm running through the airport with a chemical weapon. I get into the bathrooms, I, I turn the corner, I figure out where the stalls are, I fling open the door to the stall, I set down my son Hank, I get his pants off, and then, you guys, he lets go, right? And that's gross, I know that's gross. It was gross. It was super gross. Uh, there's a mess on him. There's a mess on the floor and on me. There's just, it's a, just a terrible, I'm sorry, I know it's church, but it was gross. 
And there's a moment here in, in the airport bathroom where I literally thought, I'm just gonna put this kid in the trash. You know what I'm saying? There's like a big, there's like a big dumpster, like one of those big trash cans, and I thought, I can just take him and set him in there, because I'm young, I can have more kids, you know? And he, he'll be like a fixer-upper kid for somebody who's willing to put in the time and effort, you know? They can pull him out of the trash and restore him, and he'll be fine. You know, like, I'm just like, I gotta get away from this, right? <clears throat> and uh, then my little boy turns to me, and he is absolutely devastated and ashamed and embarrassed, and he's sobbing, right? And so I, I begin the process of cleaning up this little boy. And I remember the next memory I have is standing in the bank of sinks uh, at the Fresno Airport bathroom. I look in the mirror, I can see myself washing poop out of these tiny underpants, right? And I'm thinking, when did this become my life? You know, like, when did I become the guy that does this particular job in this particular place? But here I am, you know, so I'm cleaning the tiny underwear. And he, here's the thing I want you to see in that story. There wasn't a moment that day where Hank thanked me. There isn't going to be a moment in the future where Hank, you know, he, he doesn't like that story, but he, there's never going to be a moment where he calls me, you know, in the future, and he's like, Dad, do you remember that day in the Fresno Airport bathroom? It was so inspirational, I've decided to become a missionary, or what? Like, that's not going to happen. There were no other people in that bathroom, you know, clapping for me. You, sir, are an outstanding father. We're calling Oprah Winfrey, you know, or whatever. Like, there's nobody, there was nobody watching that. And that was a gross, gross job. Why did I do that thing? Why did I serve that kid that way? Because there was no payoff for me. Why did I do it? I did it because I love that kid. And love is a motivator when there is no other payoff. Love is a motivator when there is no other payoff. So in those moments where you and I are tempted to hunker down, where we're tempted to lock and bar the door and surround ourselves with other people who look and think and feel and believe exactly like us and never go outside again, to just get our arms around each other and the shalom that Christ extends to us when we're tempted to hunker down, the question you have to ask yourself is, who are you loving? Because when I didn't want to go on stage in Utah, I was loving me. I was loving me. I was loving my own skin. I was loving my future. I was loving my dreams and my plans. I was loving my safety. I was loving my band. But I wasn't loving the people of Utah. Jesus looks at them and he says, Shalom, peace be unto you. But this peace isn't just for you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit and carry this message out because those you carry this message of forgiveness to will be forgiven, and those from whom you withhold it, it will be withheld. What's the motivator for us to serve? The clipboards came around a minute ago to get involved, not just serving here, but serving your city, serving this state, serving the world. What's the motivator? It's not a payoff, because there are times, as Jesus says, where all that's gonna happen for you is you're gonna get scars like his. What's the payoff for you? There might not be one. So what's the motivator? Love. Love for the Lord Jesus and love for his people. No matter what they think, no matter what they look like, no matter where they come from, no matter if they've had the same experience as you or not, no matter if they live in the same kind of house you do or they make the same kind of money you do, no matter if they believe the same things you do, it's about loving God's people, those he created, and carrying to them as an ambassador a message of reconciliation, not hunkering down behind our walls, but throwing off the locks, and being sent like Jesus was sent.
to serve like Jesus served. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you that you come to us in the midst of our fear. You turn our sorrow to joy. You give us your peace and you send us out by the power of your spirit. Help us to be people who recognize and understand what a great gift that is, that we've been called to live like you. We pray these things in Christ's name.